You know, Christians don't talk much about fighting anymore. We live in a world where the very idea of fighting seems to be mean or, or cruel. Sometimes it's uh, thought to be unchristian. We have uh, a lot of denominations that are, have removed the song Onward Christian Soldiers from their hymn books or from their song list. Um, but there's a place and there's a time for Christians to engage in a fight. And I'm not talking about punching someone out. Uh, I'm not talking about having a good old Baptist business meeting, that type of fight. Uh, but I'm talking about having a spiritual battle. And a spiritual battle uh, that can uh, even be very intense. Legend has it that in uh, 325 A.D., at the Council of Nicaea, when the early church fathers were coming together to talk about the Trinity, to talk about the person of Jesus Christ, and who are we as the church, as believers in Jesus, who are we saying that Jesus really is. And so this was the first time that many people, uh, church leaders, had come together to debate this issue. And you had a, a man by the name of Arius, A-R-I-U-S, who uh, came and said, he was a bishop, and he said that he did not believe that Jesus was of the same substance or the same essence as God the Father. He thought that Jesus was less than uh, God. And um, you had on the other side a number of uh, other pastors, including a guy by the name of uh, Nicholas, who was a pastor of the church, a bishop of the church of uh, Myrna. And he very much felt the other, the other way. And the legend goes that the arguing got so intense that uh, Nicholas, who later we know uh, has been in popular terminology called Saint Nick, that guy actually punched Arius in the nose. And there's uh, not a lot of evidence as to whether that truly happened or not, but the argumentation did get pretty intense. They were talking about something very important, the deity of Christ. They're talking about who the church should understand Jesus to be. And there are spiritual battles that sometimes we have to engage in. The Bible itself is very much filled with uh, fighting. It's filled with warriors. It's filled with victors. Uh, why? Because there's a lot of things in this life worth fighting for. Yet Abraham, we don't think of Abraham as a warrior, but he really was. Abraham was a warrior. Joshua was a warrior. The judges were warriors. King David was a warrior. These are all men of God who had something to fight for. Jesus himself was very much a warrior, very much a fighter. We have this tendency to think of Jesus as simply being meek and mild and, and uh, not ever causing much of a fuss. But when he went into the temple, Scripture says that he made a, a whip out of some cords, and he cleaned out that temple. And so uh, if you have that picture of Jesus in your mind, you can understand that uh, he probably was not very meek and mild in the popular vernacular at that point. Peter himself, the man whose book we're studying, the book of 1 Peter, he was a fighter. 
he liked to he liked to uh, rumble i think uh, peter would just sort of jump in and and uh, be the first one to pick a fight I, I think sometimes peter may have been part texan um there was a line in peter's mind and if you crossed it well it, it's time to throw down you know it's time to go and peter was the one who when they were at the garden of gethsemane and uh, jesus was uh, just about to be arrested he was the one peter was who grabbed the soldier's sword and cut off the ear of the high priest's servant a man by the name of malchus and i think peter's message through his actions was pretty clear tell the high priest to come here and try to arrest my friend peter was someone who liked to fight peter was someone who uh, knew the importance at times of uh, putting up or shutting up and uh, peter sometimes when he liked to fight and he liked to get aggressive he was wrong as jesus reminded him in that case but peter would eventually come to understand that there was a much stronger enemy than the poor slave of the high priest that he would need to battle with and that enemy was satan in fact Jesus repeatedly warned Peter that Satan was after him. Satan was ready to fight Peter, too. And Peter failed, unfortunately, to heed the warning, and he fell asleep when Jesus needed him the most in that Garden of Gethsemane. I think today too many Christians have fallen asleep when it's time to fight when it's time to fight spiritually, when it's time to pray. Too many Christians have fallen asleep. Take your Bible and turn to 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 8 through 11 will be our focus. 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 8 through 11. Scripture says in these verses, Be of sober spirit, be on the alert, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour but resist him firm in your faith knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world after you have suffered for a little while the god of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in christ will himself perfect confirm strengthen and establish you to him be dominion forever and ever amen in this simple passage of scripture we understand who our enemy is and the enemy is satan your enemy satan is an accuser verse 8 calls him an adversary he's an adversary an adversary is an accuser it's someone who accuses you before the court satan is the one who accuses you before god He's the one, when you fail, when you sin, Satan is the one standing before God saying, look at this one. Look at this one. That certainly can't be one of your children, can it, God? And they, he accuses you of your sin before God. Zechariah chapter 3, verses 1 through 5 says, Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him and the lord said to satan the lord rebuke you O satan the lord who has chosen jerusalem rebuke you 
Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments, and the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken away your iniquity from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head, and they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. If you believe, as I do, that that Old Testament term, the angel of the Lord, is actually a reference to pre-incarnate appearance of Christ, then here is the Lord Jesus Christ standing for us, defending us, clothing us, cleansing us, when our adversary, the devil, accuses us. It's a beautiful picture of a courtroom and Jesus winning the day. Yeah, you may have failed. Yeah, you may have sinned. Yeah, Satan may accuse you, but it will not stand because you're covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. Your enemy not only is an adversary, not only is he an accuser, but he's a slanderer. Look at verse 8 again in 1 Peter 5. It says, Your adversary, the devil... He is the devil. He makes false accusations about you. He lies about you. He lies to you. He is someone that slanders the character that God is building in your heart. In the same book, in chapter 2, verse 12, we read, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. It's so important that we do everything that we can to live holy lives, to live godly lives, so that the accusations against us have no staying power. They don't stick, but they're found to be false. Your enemy is a slanderer. Your enemy is a liar. Your enemy is a murderer. Jesus said of the devil, and he said this to some people that were doing the devil's work, he said, you are of your father the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and has nothing to do with the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. Your enemy is a liar. He is a murderer. He is the one who has set himself up against you to accuse you, to cause you problems in this life. And if you're not ready to fight then you'll certainly lose battles more often than you win. Your enemy's goal, his goal is to devour you. He is a lion seeking to devour you. Years ago, there was a movie that came out called The Ghost in the Darkness. And it was a movie about some lions in 1898. There was a British a group that was trying to build a railway from Uganda to the coast. And they had to cross a certain river. And one by one, from March to December of 1998, turned out to be a pair of lions kept attacking the workers. And it delayed the building of this rail line to connect the coast to Uganda. Over time, 
it was impossible to tell exactly how many people were killed because so many of the workers left they were scared eventually those two lines were shot that are on display in Chicago in a museum today some tests were done and they think that uh, one of them killed and ate 24 men and another 11 and you can imagine the kind of terror that would go on in a man's heart a grown man's heart out in the bush as these lions came and attacked and they'd roar you'd hear them from a distance they say that a lion's roar can be heard five miles away probably one of the most terrifying noises anyone can ever hear lions usually hunt at night and typically when a lion is hunting alone it will slowly and silently stalk its prey until it's about a hundred feet away and then with a burst of speed that lion will run toward the prey and grab it and throw it to the ground and with its huge jaws it will crush the prey's neck and snap its spinal column but if during the hunt the prey knows that the lion is coming and the prey starts to run the lion will give up because the lion doesn't have the type of energy to go on an extended chase scripture says your 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 adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour he's seeking someone to devour don't let it be you the battle that we're in is one that calls for soberness it calls for a fight it calls for us to be ready and aware because the goal of the devil is not to give you a bad day the goal of the devil is not to irritate you the goal of the devil is not to agitate you and make you post something on Facebook that you'd rather regret the goal of the devil is to kill you it is to devour you it is to destroy you to annihilate you that is the goal of your adversary and so it's important that we are awake we're sober we realize that on any given day if the devil is given free reign in our lives he might choose to attack we have a God in heaven that the devil has to submit to the devil does not have free reign the devil's authority is limited but nevertheless today the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour how can the devil call, cause us to be destroyed and yet we still live he tries to assimilate us back into the evil ways of the world. Sometimes the devil's attacks are not attacks on our health. Sometimes it could be. It may not be an attack on our finances, but it's certainly always an attack on us spiritually. And the devil seeks to get you to this day forsake what you know of Christ and to live like the rest of the world. And if he's done that, he's begun his process of destroying you spiritually be alert be aware be sober and that's the first step in defeating your enemy 
you have to be alert. Verse 8 again starts, says, Be of sober spirit. Be alert. The idea is that you have a, a clear-minded and self-controlled mental state that is free from confusion. It's free from driving passions that might cause you to make the wrong choice. It means that you keep your eyes open, that you don't let up, you don't relax. In 2 Samuel chapter 11, Scripture tells us of uh, King David. The very first verse in that chapter, and you know what that chapter is really about. That chapter in 2 Samuel chapter 11 is the story of David and Bathsheba. The one day in David's life that changed everything for him because he made a bad choice from the very beginning. Verse 1 of that chapter reads this way. Then it happened in the spring at the time when kings go out to battle that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel and they destroyed the sons of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David stayed at Jerusalem. He stayed at Jerusalem on the day when kings are supposed to go out to battle. He stayed back. He relaxed. He let his guard down when he should have been leading the army of the Lord on the battlefield. When he relaxed, when David relaxed and he left the battle, that is when he fell into sin. When Peter relaxed, even after everything that Jesus said, at the very last supper that they would have, they went up on the mountain, and certainly they were tired as the middle of the night. But Peter relaxed along with the others, and he fell into sleep and fell into Satan's trap. Jesus said, Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Now, if you were a literal shepherd watching over literal sheep, and you knew that just beyond the sheepfold there was a literal lion on the prowl, would you sleep that night? No, not on your life. You'd be awake. You'd be alert. You'd be watchful. And that's what God calls us to be. He calls us to be watchful because there is a lion on the prowl, and he wants to attack the flock of God. And so the first step is to be alert. Secondly, you have to resist the devil. Verse 9, But resist him. Resist him. You know, one of the enemy's favorite ways to attack you is to find your weak spot and to go for it. I'm a student of history, and in 1973, there was a thing that many of you may remember called the Yom Kippur, Yom Kippur War in 1973. It lasted about 20 days. And uh, in that war, on the Egyptian side, when the Egyptians were attacking the modern state of Israel, they, they'd crossed the Suez Canal, and they set up armies on the Israel-held Sinai Peninsula. And in just over one week, Israel's 143rd Armored Division, led by a man that became more famous, his name Ariel Sharon, he burst through the Suez Canal, and they built a bridge and crossed over into Egypt, just north of the uh, Great Bitter Lake in that area. 
and they cut off Egypt's third army to the south. And so Ariel Sharon had found a gap between the second army of Egypt and the third army to the south. And they snuck in through the Suez Canal, poured in a lot of troops, and cut off the third army. Cut off every road from it to Cairo. And because that third army was cut off and all of the SAM missiles uh, installations were destroyed, Israel's Air Force could come in and just start attacking one after another until finally both sides were very spent and a truce was called. Ariel Sharon led that raid because he had found a weak spot in the enemy's line of defense. Same strategy is true of Satan. If pride is your weak spot, if you've been wounded, if your pride has been wounded, Satan will use that to his advantage. If your emotional needs have not been met, Satan will tell you that they can be met in different ways. Now, every one of us has weaknesses at some point. But I would say this, that where you are weak, there are others in the body of Christ that are strong. And it's so important that we gather together each and every week, whenever possible, so that we can look out for one another. Together, we are an army that can oppose the enemy. And if there's a break in the ranks, however, it gives Satan an opportunity to attack the people of God. And so please understand that your presence among the people of God is very important because you might, on that particular day, let someone else down who needs your strengths, for they are weak. And so we must be of sober spirit and be on the alert. We must resist the devil. We must believe. We must believe. Verse 9 says, but resist him firm in your faith. When we resist Satan, we must stay firm in our faith. That means that we trust in the victory of Christ. Satan's weapon, his only weapon, is lying. And we must counteract Satan's lies with the Word of God. Every time that Satan attacked Jesus Christ uh, in Matthew 4 and in Luke 4, the temptation account, attacked him three different ways, three separate times, every single time Jesus responded with the Word of God. He stood on the trustworthiness of the Word of God. Jesus was weak after 40 days of not eating. I don't know what kind of condition you might be in, but I know that I would not only be weak, I'd probably be very cranky. I'd probably not be real happy with life after 40 days of not eating. I'd probably be very vulnerable to someone coming along with any type of temptation. A temptation of the eyes, a temptation of, of, of the senses, a temptation of the mind. I'd probably want to give him. Jesus when he was attacked those three separate ways, every time responded with the Word of God. And that's how we must respond as well. The Word of God is truth, but Satan whispers lies into our ears. So we must stand firm in our faith and believe. And fourth, we need to remember. We need to remember. Verse 9 says, Resist Satan, firm in your faith, and knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. 
never forget that what the experiences and the trials and the sufferings that you're going through are the same trials that other Christians have gone through not only in history but are going through today. You are not alone. Sometimes when you're in a spiritual battle, you feel like it's you against all the hordes of, of hell. But it's not true. You are not alone. God's grace is sufficient for you. Verse 10 says, After you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who called you to His eternal glory in Christ will Himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To Him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. Why does God allow us to go through those difficulties? Why does He even allow Satan from time to time to come against us in a limited attack? Why does He allow us to suffer? I believe that one reason is so that He can shed His grace upon us. So that we can experience the grace of God. You see, when you suffer, you come to the end of yourself and you learn to lean on God. And as you suffer, God, He restores you. He perfects you. He confirms you. He strengthens you and He puts a foundation under you. In verse 10, that very first word, perfect, in that list, it says that God Himself will perfect you. Let me tell you about that word. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 21, it says that John and his brother James are out at the Sea of Galilee. And it says that they had been fishing and that they had come to shore and they had their nets there. And it says, probably in your translation, says something like they were, they were mending the nets. They were tending to the nets. It's the same word, perfect. They were perfecting the nets. It's the exact, exact same word. What goes on in that type of fishing? You go out to sea, and you let that net down into the sea, and if you have a good catch, you haul in the fish, and sometimes those nets begin to tear. Those nets begin to stretch. They may break a little bit here and there, but you've got to catch. And you come back to shore, and you take care of all the fish, and you go back to the nets, and you get the nets ready to go out again. And where the net is torn, you fix it up. Where the net is stretched and it's weak, you bind it together and you make it strong again. You see, you and I, we're that net that God uses. Now, if a fisherman takes that net and he lays that net out on the shore and he says, I don't want that net to get torn. I don't want that net to suffer. I don't want that net to go through a hard time. 
So I'm just going to let this net lay out on the beach and just soak in the sun. You know what will happen to that net? You probably know. It's going to get real frail, real breakable. It's going to get real weak. Before long, that's, that net's not good for anything. How does the net stay useful to the fishermen? How does the net stay strong? It is through being used. When that net serves its purpose and it's no longer on the beach, but it's out into the ocean and it's hauling in the fish, when the net is being used for the purpose for which it was built and put together, that is when the net remains its strongest. Does that mean that sometimes the net tears a little? Yeah. Does it mean the net suffers a little? Yeah. But the net is useful to the fishermen. Same word is used about you and me in verse 10. God will perfect you. He will mend you. He will tend to you. He will strengthen you. He will fix you when you break a little bit. But he'll make you strong. And he'll keep you useful. Because God cares for you. The burdens that you have to bear are real. The burdens that you have to bear hurt sometimes. But you don't bear them alone. Even if you break, there's other parts of the net. And it's called God's people. It's the church. God will restore you. Don't be afraid of little suffering. Don't be afraid of hard times. But rather, resist the devil. Be alert. And God will take care of the rest.